The opinions expressed in the Epsilon Theory podcast represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Hello everyone, this is Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory and Salient Partners here with the uh, most recent installment for the Epsilon Theory podcast. I am joined here with my partner, friend, and the president of Salient, uh, Mr. Jeremy Radcliffe. How are you doing, Jeremy? Doing great, Ben. Looking forward to round two here. Round two, indeed, indeed. I, I'm doing pretty well also, though my Uber driver this morning said, excuse me, sir, are you tired? So, I, you know, you always hate that when your Uber driver recognizes that, you know, you are, are tarred, as we'd say in Alabama. But, but, but yeah, that's, that's, that's where I am. My Uber driver showed me a shortcut in my own hometown this morning that I, didn't, that I wasn't aware of. And so, you got the winning part of this deal. Yep. That was great. So, we're also joined here by Michael Correo, uh, behind the glass, as they would say um, in, in sports radio land. Uh, Director of Communications at Salient. So, Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you as uh, Master of Ceremonies here to, to, to get this party going. Terrific. Um, I think we should start off by talking about what everyone is talking about, and that's the upcoming election. It seems to be narrowed down to Donald Trump on the Republican side, looking like Hillary on the Democrat side still. Uh, what do you guys think? What's your take? What are the odds? Where are you seeing this going? Over to you, Jeremy. <laughs> Well, great question, Michael. Something that that's uh, definitely more than just water cooler talk right now. It's on every TV show and every you know personal interaction with the strong feelings that that people have towards Donald Trump as well as Hillary Clinton. Um, but the thing that's that's interesting to me, Ben, and I think relevant to the epsilon theory and and the way that you see the world, uh, is just how wrong. Um, some of our uh, our heroes of previous elections, and I'm yeah. looking at I'm looking at you, Nate Silver, and some of the uh, some of the folks I think we really admire who take an analy- a rigorous Absolutely. analytical Absolutely. approach. One of my favorites. They take that analytical approach to um, the political realm and get it out of the you know anecdotal world that we've been in. But it's been an odd year for Nate Silver. He hasn't been nearly as accurate uh, as he has in years past. He really missed the Donald Trump phenomenon. He discounted Donald Trump pretty strongly, or you know, early on, and uh, and you're seeing today still the even on the uh, on the political betting sites. I'm, if I were a betting man on politics, I am a betting man, but usually yes. in a casino. Uh, if I were a betting man on politics, you know, I got to tell you, I, I still like Trump at these at these, you know, three what, and four. What to are one. the odds? You're saying three to four to one. The last I saw, you know, as as recently as a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I was seeing as much as five to one uh, on Trump to win. Wow. Um, you know, nice. recently it's tightened up to I think in that three to one range, three to four to one range. I think you said you saw it a little bit tighter. Yeah, yeah, I saw something on the the, the London, you know, bookmakers is like thirteen to five. Uh, on Trump and two to five with, with, with Hillary. So about two and a half, but you're right, two and a half, three to one. I bet you could still get three to one on Trump. 
So what, what do you do? So are you are you are you um, are you well, taking I, that? Are you hitting? You know, that? I just when I look back, when I look at the, uh, I did that. When I look at two thousand eight, yes, I, I was all over Trump at four or five to one. I think you're you know two and a half, three to one. You're getting closer to fair value. Right. Um, but I still think it's an interesting. Uh, there's interesting optionality there. I think the models are con- continue to underrate, you know, Trump's appeal. And I think what uh, getting to the anecdotal world uh, and and how you know I look at these elections, I continue to think Hillary Clinton is just a terrible candidate. And I think Bernie's exposed a lot of her weaknesses, you know, so far in the primary. Did you uh, see today, by the way, where where and I know we shouldn't date these things. We're going to do it anyway. But where Hillary said she's going to turn the economy over to Bill. Did you see that? I, mean, it's, it's I did pretty, not. Is probably pretty smart on her, or for, for for her. I mean, in terms of Wait, shoring thought... up her status quo uh, bona fides well, on Wall Street, yeah. right? Well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Bob Rubin and Larry Summers to come walking through that door. Oh, no doubt. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. There hasn't been a new person or new idea in either <laughs> you know in that party. And in... Larry Summers. Wow. Yeah. But the, but back to the back to the point of of you know Hillary's candidacy and and where she's weak. I, I just feel like she's such a mismatch for uh, you know the atmosphere, the zeitgeist, if you will, kind of like Mitt Romney in two thousand eight. Okay, you had Occupy Wall Street protests raging across the country, and the Republicans nominated Mitt Private Equity Romney. You know, it just couldn't be a couldn't a, be more tone deaf. Couldn't be more tone deaf. Yeah. And here you have Hillary, who is you know uh, I, one of the most establishment candidates we've seen. You know, a career politician um, in a year where the prevailing sentiment is is more of a throw the bums out on both sides. And I think you've just seen. I think you're seeing the same demographic. These the dispossessed, frustrated, middle class white males who've seen their economic picture stagnate, if not um, retrench over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, while everybody else seems to be doing great up at the top. And Bernie's tapped into that. Yeah, Trump's, ta- tapped into Trump's tapped into sure. that. Yeah. And Hillary, I, I just I don't think you're going to see that conversion of Bernie voters to Hillary like you did Hillary voters to Obama in 2008. Right, right. I saw something interesting on this dynamic also. It was a uh, a piece today about uh, Bill de Blasio, the, the, the mayor of New York, of New York. And the point of the article was that, um, you know, when de Blasio was elected, landslide, I mean, the, 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 the candidate the Republicans put up against him was a joke, just a total joke. So he went in a landslide. And the notion was that he would become this spokesperson on a national level for progressive issues. But a, Bernie came up and, and stole all that thunder, and B, de Blasio is now mired in at least four separate federal and state investigations on fundraising for his various efforts. And there was a, there was a great quote from the guy who used to run uh, Bloomberg's campaigns in the paper today. He said, look, what, what Bloomberg had going for him above all else was something that Trump had going for him, right? That he self-financed. He's basically unbribable in kind of that meta sense, right? And actually maybe the very specific sense too of not needing to play that political career politician's game of fundraisers and, and the like. He said, look, I think what I think happened with de Blasio, who's obviously a career politician, he came back in and his people thought, all right, we're just going to go back to the way it was in terms of fundraisers and campaign dinners. And here we'll set up this 
pack over here to fund our, our, our efforts. And what they didn't realize was that it, it may be perfectly legal and maybe the way it was done in a, in a legal sense back pre-Bloomberg era, pre-Obama era, pre-Great Recession era, but the world has changed. Whether you're on the left or on the right, that career politician, let's do fundraising and let's you know, do what we've always done to fill the party coffers, it does not work today. Not legally, not in terms of, of what flies with the public. You're just, you just can't do well, it. We're, we're in the Thomas Piketty world. Which now, which is, you know, a natural extension of really the Occupy Wall Street environment that we had during. Is that how you pronounce it, Piketty? I never know how to pronounce these things. That's what I've heard, but I. I No, it's better than I do. I can certainly. I read all this stuff. I don't say the word, so I never know how to pronounce it. I could certainly be wrong. Who is he? Uh, he t- Piketty wrote the uh, the book that came out two years ago on uh, on income uh, income income inequality. Right. Uh, French dude, you know, got the Legion of Honor or whatever they call it, and of course turned yeah. it down because you yeah. know that would be distracting from the message of you know anti elitism. Twenty first century Alexis de Tocqueville. Well, to himself, a legend in his own <laughs> mind. Right? And so, so the thing about Piketty or Piketty or however he pronounces his, his name right is that. Uh, I, I think he's almost he's wrong on almost every bit of his both data collection and data interpretation. But if you don't realize that he is absolutely right about the bigger point, you're just not paying attention. Right? It, it, he's absolutely right. This is going to be the defining issue globally, locally, oh. everything else. And like you said on the camp on campaign on whether it's financing campaigns, okay, and you've got de Blasio with these issue issues, Clinton, who is the de Blasio oh, of the please. of the, you know, presidential election, with her own issues about coordinations with various with you know DNC related super PACs and the like. Um, and she's not generating the direct, you know, to consumer fundraising efforts like Bernie is, and he's trumpeting those, of course. Trump Trump has his own, Trump's using his own war chest. Bernie's getting it from, you know, the the, the common crowdsourcing. man, crowdsourcing, of, you know, a presidential candidate. And so you just have, again, I think Hillary out of step with uh, a lot of things that are going on uh, in terms of the, you know, the feeling of the electorate. By the way, this whole notion of crowdsourcing as a source of funding businesses Forget that. The real impact of crowdsourcing is Absolutely. Be, it's funding of politics. Well, that's we and, and Howard Dean really was was the at, yeah. at the very beginning of that. <laughs> yeah, the scream. The scream. The scream. Never the same. He'll be remembered. For, he'll be remembered for the scream, but, but he should be impact. he should be remembered for really breaking down this barrier yep. into into direct fundraising and crowd crowdsourcing an election that Obama really took and ran with, and then this this campaign's clearly. You know, Bernie's, uh, you know, turn to shine. In that also regard. a Vermont candidate, also from the progressive wing. That's uh, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly right. So enough enough stories yeah. about how Hillary is is or is not a strong candidate, despite being a, a pretty heavy favorite in the, in this election. What, let's talk about game theory and how that can help us um, look at the presidential election in a little bit different light and maybe explain why um, seasoned and accurate and analytical forecasters um, like Nate uh, Silver have, have been off. Yeah, it, 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 you know, long, long time ago, back, <laughs> back in academic days, this is my first book, was on uh, coalition politics and the different dimensions of politics 
in the Western world. So the, the European democracies, Japan, the United States. And what was always interesting about the United States, and it's particularly because we have a two-party system, which kind of forces what I'm about to describe, is that while in, in, in European elections there are multiple dimensions that the, the parties define themselves on, not just left-right, yeah, but uh, you know, insurgent or a status quo, you know, very uh, uh, issue-specific parties you get in Europe because they have a, a system of representation where so long as you get 5%, typically 5% of the national vote, you get seats in parliament or the, whatever their, their, their legislative body is. It's not at all geographically defined with 50% plus one, first past the post, as they call it here in the United States. So our, our political system really lends itself to having only two parties, because you've got to get that majority vote in whatever geographic district you're talking about. But it also lends itself to narrowing the issues on which that that party, those two parties define themselves on. And so here in the US, it's been forever a single dimension, right, which we characterize as being on the left or being on the right. And that's where our, our party uh, in the electorate, how they define themselves. And something amazing's happened since really 1994 was the peak of this just single single issue, single dimension definition. There's a great group called the, the, the Pew PEW Research Center, which does amazing work on, on elections. Like they've got data going back to the 1930s. 1930s, they didn't have survey data like they do today. So the, the 1930s, they would test this and looking at, well, what's the, what are the policy positions of people in Congress to see how Congress men, and they were all men back in the 1930s, how they fit on these different electoral dimensions. And what you saw happen in the 1930s is exactly what you're seeing today, which is that, although today we can see it in the actual electorate, not just the, the people who go to Congress, but it's not just that the distance between the median Democratic voter and the median Republican voter is getting wider. It is. Right? But what's really changing is the shape of that Republican electorate, the shape of the Democratic electorate, where the way voters now define themselves is not what lends itself to what we call in statistics a single peaked distribution, right, where the majority of Democratic voters were kind of towards the middle. A traditional bell curve. Traditional bell curve, that's right. And when you have these two traditional bell curves and you put them together, you had a very stable two-party electoral system in the United States, where in a general election, what you want to be as the candidate is the candidate goes to the middle. Because if you get there in the center, there's a clear majority of voters across both parties where you stake out that policy position, you're going to win. That has changed enormously over the last 20, 25 years. And I really encourage anyone to go to the, the Pew Research Center site, and I've, I've put this in a couple of notes. But that distribution, so for example, on the Democrat side, it's now almost a, a flat distribution. It's not, it's not a bell curve at all. You've got so many people now define themselves way to the left on this dimension. And on the Republican side, it's vice versa. So many people now define themselves way to the, to the right. And what you see in these charts is there's no majority in the middle. The center does not hold. So not only has the middle class been hollowed out 
for real, economically speaking, we've also had a hollowing out of the, the center. The median voter has been hollowed out. That's what they call it, the median voter theorem. It's what all of Nate Silver's models are based on. All of it, again, we talk about models, right? How do you how do you make a what are the odds you're gonna set on Hillary being elected or or Trump or you know in the primaries? This is why the electoral models failed, because there is no middle there. So one one other really interesting thing comes out of this, other than the failure of the models, is that it gives space for other dimensions to emerge. Because, you know, we're human beings. We don't define ourselves just on one thing. Right? There are other dimensions that you see, like, say, particularly in European politics that are now emerging here in the U.S. And the one I think you've talked a lot about, Jeremy, is this the dimension of, I'll call it insurgency versus status quo, right? Which is a dimension where, frankly, Sanders and Trump are on the same end of that Abs- spectrum, Absolutely. Right? And that's why they're having such success, is because that traditional dimension of U.S. politics has gotten hollowed out, the center's not there, but it allows space for these other dimensions like insurgency versus status quo to really emerge. And that's why I think the models or the betting lines, whatever you want to call it, are getting it wrong on on Hillary and Trump. So the electorates change, the nature of the electorates change, what's important across the electorate and the shape of these of these curves from left to right has changed and the models on the political broken. political, political force, forecasting side are broken. Broken, broken. But, it, but I tell you, it gives room for once you kind of think of it in that way, you can apply those models to that insurgent status quo dimension, right? I mean, the models are just math. It's just that we, we've gotten in a habit of just applying our math and our models to these the dimensions that historically worked. And now if they're not working, we're going, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And what we do is apply those the math to these other dimensions that now have room to, to, to really shine. For the record, I'd probably be even more uh, bullish on the Trump odds uh, if if I had any confidence that he had he, that he had the uh, desire or ability to put together any sort of a coherent ground game and actual strategy and plan for the general, uh, which I still see as a big uh, you know big weakness for him. It's so frustrating, isn't it? It's just I mean it, I mean just as a human being when these are your choices. <laughs> sorry, well said, well said. So. Models are broken in, in in the political forecasting world, or at least they need to be changed to accommodate some of these other dimensions um, rather than just this simplistic left-right uh, approach that they've taken. Oh, can I bring on one other dimension? This is going to be a, an interesting dimension, I think, sure. for you, is that there's, you know, the, the dimensions of, of, I'll call it, populism versus, sta- versus statism, which is linked to that insurgent versus mm-hmm. status quo. That's clearly at play here. But I also think there's there's clearly at play here the dimension of I'll call it authoritarian versus libertarian, and it, frankly I'm not sure that I, I see both Hillary and the Donald more on that authoritarian side. Sanders too, frankly, as opposed to the libertarian. That I, I don't know where there's a candidate on the libertarian side, really in any any country on earth right now. But there's there's a hole there. That, that I think yeah. is that, interesting that, for that, political that, candidates going forward. That Rand Paul proved oddly, <laughs> oddly incapable yeah, of taking oddly advantage of. Right? Uh, oh man! He said some of the smartest things I heard out, out of any of the early debaters, and also some of the 
least Most intelligent. Least intelligent, right? right. Uh, so models and models in, in political forecasting are broken or needs or need some adjusting. Uh, let's, Michael, is it time to turn our attention to the to the uh, economic money? And you know, investing? let's talk markets and economy in that same in that same topic, right? I mean, what's if models are broken? And you've you this is a little bit of a setup. You've written yeah. about models being broken. That's one of uh, the key pieces you mentioned in your five easy pieces note from uh, Hobson's Choice. Uh, yep, that, six this, or eight, six weeks ago, four or six, six weeks, weeks ago, ago, which was really designed to be kind of a uh, a cumulative effort of where epsilon theory has been and where I think it's going to go. Uh, where it's been over the past, hey, we're coming up on the third anniversary. Hey, happy uh, early birthday. Weeks. Happy early birthday. But where I think it really goes for being useful for uh, investors and advisors going forward is that is that that piece. That was really kind of a, for me, it was kind of a, a landmark, if you will. So we know one group in that's got a decent amount of, um, of sway in the financial markets uh, that has models that they use. Talking here about the Fed. Oh yeah, it, but you know, you know, the, the problem with the models being broken—it's everywhere in in our business. And here about our business, I'll say, professional investors or, or, or allocators—it's it, absolutely the Fed. And I want to come back there because that's where it, the rubber meets the road, right? But it's also true for any sell side economist or piece that gets put out. So I, I saw today where, where Goldman Sachs is upping their, their target for, for, for crude oil, right? Their new target is 50 bucks. 59. 59, really? 59. The old target was 59? Wow. 59, 61, 4. And, and I saw some, some other people, you know, saying, no, we're going to up the target. Of course, now that it's... At where it was the 48. 48 or, or where yeah, yeah. it is. Right? Well, all the, all the sell recommendations on Valiant came in, you know, post yes, the 70% yes, of course. decline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. What I, but what is still striking to me is that the reason why the because that underlies these model-based price targets, whether it's Goldman or anybody else, is there's... Again, but they're still talking about supply and demand. They're still talking about, well, Indian demand for oil is much stronger than we thought it was. I mean, are you kidding me? Who, who, it, it happens to be true, but when Indian demand for oil was stronger a week in the past, nobody ever talked about that. That was, it, it's, it's always this post hoke, proctor hoke, you know, after this, because of this approach that, People are still so married to these models of fundamental this or fundamental that. So it's not just the Fed, and I do want to talk mostly about that, but it's everywhere in this business. You know, it was, I think it was Keynes said, we're all prisoners of some long dead scribbler. And um, that no, nowhere is that more true than when we're talking about investing in markets. So what's the Fed to do? Their models aren't. Their models are broken. Models are broken. Um, I, I, you know, they want to raise rates. Yeah. In many, in in, in a lot well, of ways. Well, I, I tell you, so so I, I know a number of people, none of the top people, but sure, people who work at New York Fed, Atlanta Fed, a lot of Epsilon theory subscribers actually. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, without exception, without exception, the people I know work at these places, guys and gals, they're they're very smart, and they're they're really trying to do a good job, and they really care. 
they really care. This is not a punch the clock job, right? This this is this is a job people do. Well, it is a ticket to maybe go work on the buy side someday. That that's not lost on anyone. Well, I, I would agree with that assessment on the the, the people I've met in those yeah. uh, in those organizations. They do care. They, they are trying care. to they are trying to solve or contribute to the solution of, of uh, a fairly uh, you know, important and, and intractable problem. Almost all of them are, have an academic background, like I did. They're members of the church, which means that they've been raised to believe in the models. So it really is, I'll really describe it this way, it's a crisis of faith when the models don't work anymore. And you know, we can all draw examples of this from, from, from our lives. When someone has a crisis of faith, I think there are basically two ways that people react to it. One way is to say, oh my God, it's a crisis of faith. I've been believing in the wrong thing. I need to look somewhere else for my answers with a capital A. And there's definitely that crowd at the Fed. But then there's the other group, right, where you have a crisis of faith where you say, oh, I'm being tested I must believe more. <laughs> the Scientologists. Well, there you go. There you go. But you, you see it in all sorts of ways, right? Um, in all aspects of... Uh, Apologies of to our Scientologist listeners. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, and you see this in the Fed. You definitely see that camp in the Fed, right, which says, oh, our models aren't working. Something must be blocking it, right? Something must be interfering. Yeah. How Bo- do we, blocking the transmission. Yeah, you've heard, yes. heard that oh, language. Oh, man, yeah. have you not heard that language? So, so, so how do you unblock it? What do you think? How would, how would you unblock it? M-O-A-R? M-O-A-R, yeah, <laughs> with three exclamation marks, all caps. Something's blocking it. We just have to do more to overcome the blockage. And, and I'll tell you, I, I, I see that more, no pun intended, in or that faction represented more heavily in the ECB than I do in the Fed. So, uh, which I think is to the Fed's credit. But um, but there's absolutely that crisis of faith and the way people react to it. Uh, well, isn't that because the, de- the, the, what is the alternative for the ECB? It feels like the Fed, there's at least, you know, there, there there's at least a, Probably a, a, a well-grounded thought that if if there is if we do have a recession here in the U.S. we we, we will rebound we will recover. Right. Whereas I, I I think the the ECB mindset may may be uh, that the downside is much much more dangerous well, and in fact a dissolution of the entire structure of the EU. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right in terms of the ECB and even more so with Japan, where I, you know I, I really think that what the Bank of Japan is face with right now is, well, we just got to get lucky at this point. We just have to, I know hope is not a strategy, but that's really all they've got left, I think, the Bank of Japan, or or else they have to do something totally mind Why haven't, but why, why have, they have, I don't know what more. They, they've clearly been trying to devalue the yen. Yeah, yes. And it has failed fairly miserably, at least in the, at least in the more recent, you know, right. six to twelve month period, where they really seem to have doubled down on this strategy, and they're not even getting they're that the first. They're not even that. getting the first prong of the strategy right. Weaken the currency. Yeah, that. And, and what, and what, you, what's going on there? Because there's there's this great um, typology. That sounds too too fancy. There's this great concept 
in political science when they talk about the difference between sensitivity and vulnerability. And sensitivity is what a strong player has, like the United States. So the, the U.S. economy is sensitive to the price of oil. The U.S. economy is, the U.S. Fed is sensitive to what other central banks do. But we are much less vulnerable, meaning that we have options. We Let, always have options. We don't have, we don't have existential risk to the uh, extent that these uh, to these other. That's right. Both both the Bank of Japan and the Fed are sensitive to other countries' Fed or, or uh, monetary policies. The Bank Japan is vulnerable. And that, that changes what your, your option set is. And, and look, the, the, there are only two countries in the world that have, if not invulnerability, or at least low on the vulnerability scale. And those are the two countries that are the answer to any question you want to ask about macroeconomics. It's China and the United States, slash the Fed. So whatever question you want to ask, we should try this, Michael, right? Every question you want to ask, the answer is... China and the Fed. Any question you want to ask, the answer is China and the Fed. And so you you have that that game of chicken being played between the two powers that are less vulnerable. Everyone else is just along for the ride. Uh, You have this game of chicken being played, and, and that's where game theory comes in, because there's no model to predict an outcome of a game of chicken which is how we're going to neatly, I hope, tie all this stuff together, right? Is that in the same way that the, the econometric models are broken for politics, the econometric models are broken for the Fed, the econometric models are broken for the sell side and trying to predict price levels and everything like that. What's really driving all that is in the same way you've got a polarization and a change of the underlying distribution of voters and investors, you've got an underlying change in the distribution of the power dynamics between countries. So you end up with a game of chicken, which doesn't have a single stable equilibrium, to start using some of the you know $10 economic words, and where you can't, you can't predict the outcome of a game of chicken by um, looking at the, the starting characteristics or, or historical, yeah, the probability weights line. It's not that the probability is 50-50 on who swerves off if you're running your car at the other. It's that our our models, our toolkit, it doesn't apply. It really doesn't apply. There are two binary, very different outcomes, and it's one or the other. And I tell you, this, it, 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 this is why I like reading biography and history, because what really matters for a game of chicken are the decisions of individuals. I mean, it seems so crazy to even, or it seems anathema to even suggest that in this over, overly scientificized, overly aggregated world we live in. But when you look at like the games of chicken that were played in the 1930s, this great book, Lords of Finance, they're just people. And they, they, they wake up and they, they have their, their prior beliefs and they get scared or they get overly brave and they make a decision. And that's the world we're in today as well, which should be both, I think, frightening or comforting, maybe in equal measures, maybe more frightening. (laughs) 
So in a world where ec- ec- you know the traditional models, econometric or otherwise, aren't working, game theory comes to your aid with uh, a better way of looking at at, uh, at the dynamics at play and the decision-making at play. Yeah, it does two things for you. It, one, it, it gives you a sense of well, where do I look to see what's happening? You know, what am I looking at the right thing? Uh, like, I'm not looking at OPEC meetings, right? What I'm looking at is, well, yeah, is, is Janet going to turn the barge back around towards tightening? That's what's going to matter for the price of oil. It, it helps you look at the right things, but then it also helps you think about, well, what do I do about, or how do I think about what's next? Because what game theory will not do for you, and this is the, it's, it's both um, difficult to wrap your head around it. Once you do, it's, it, it, it's, not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Game theory is not the toolkit to use to try to predict odds. I mean, we just we started this talking about you know what are the odds of you know Hillary being elected or Donald being being elected? That's not what game theory is going to help you with. It's going to help you identify okay what do I look at to see how the odds are changing? Right? Am I looking at the right thing? But that's what game theory does. Game theory does one other thing. It gives you a sense of well okay if I can't predict odds how do how do I get my mind off of this habit? And it is the habit we all have as modern, overly scientificized people. We're always trying to predict, predict things, and we get, we think of things in terms of odds. What well, game theory says: don't think in terms of things in terms of odds. This includes your portfolio. Think of things in terms of outcomes. What are states of the world that you can imagine in the future? And then don't don't try to put odds on those states of the future. But think about term in terms of well. Which of those states of the future would be really awful for me? Because the, the, the point about living in these worlds where you have unpredictability is you just want to be a survivor. You don't want to be a hero. You don't want to be an investor hero. You want to be an investor survivor. And that really does mean thinking not in terms of maximizing your probability of portfolio return, but in terms of minimizing the probability that you'll end up in a state that is unacceptable to you. A type one error. Correct. Very nice. An existential uh, moment. Very nice. Very nice. Exactly right. Exactly right. There's this whole brand of game theory, a whole stream of of game theory. It's called Minimax Regret. And the, the abbreviation for minimize your maximum regret. And it's used very commonly in things like uh, defense planning, mm-hmm. right? Climate studies, because climate studies, I, I love this one, right? Because whatever decisions we make today, we won't know if we're right or wrong for 10, 20 years. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything because you can imagine here are the different states of the future, some of which were, would be cataclysmic. Minimax regret theory says, well, all right, forget about trying to do the expected utility and the odds of these futures. Let's avoid the one that ends up with us all being really miserable, or our children being, you know, up up the creek. No pun intended. Well, this is one reason why I think uh, there's no better person as a guide to these markets and the investing world than you, Ben, uh, with your game theory background. It's a different world today 
Things are changing. Models are broken. If you want to read more about Minimax Regret, I know you've covered it in a couple of notes. Uh, I know Why Take a Chance from February of 2015 and a couple of others where you go into Minimax Regret. Great way of thinking about approaching these tough decisions about portfolio allocations in these what feels like a more of a binary and a hard to predict world that that I think you would summarize by uh, this game of the chicken analogy. Um, so thank you all for joining us. Michael, we'll turn it over to you to, to close it out and uh, look forward to, to talking again soon, Ben. You got it, Jeremy. Thanks. You must kill the chickens to scare the monkeys, right? As Mao said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Yes. <laughs>